On June 28, 1969, the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in the Greenwich Village area of New York City, was raided by the NYPD. A crowd gathered outside the bar and tensions escalated. There are differing accounts of what happened next, but before long a riot broke out. For three nights, members of the community fought the police in the streets of New York City. It was a watershed moment for LGBT rights in the United States. A year later, the riot was commemorated by the first gay pride marches in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago. From there, they've spread across the world. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast. And in honor of Pride Month, we'll give you the city view on LGBT politics, rights, and history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the summer series of the City Politics Podcast. It's Pride Month, and today we'll be talking about the politics and history of the LGBTQI rights movement. I'm joined in our virtual studio by my co-host, Constantine Vossing. Constantine, how are you going? Fantastic. Good to be back. It is good to be back on the air. It feels like it's been a couple of months, but, you know, in podcast land, it's just going to be a seamless transition from one episode to the next. Our guests today are Dr. Kuhn Slootmakers, a senior lecturer in international politics at City University of London. His research focuses on gender and sexuality politics in Europe and is specifically interested in analyzing hierarchies within the international system. More specifically, Kuhn has studied the EU accession of Serbia and how this process affects LGBTQI plus politics and activism. And his more recent project is interested in the transnational politics of LGBTQI pride parades. Welcome to the show, Kuhn. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Chris Parks. Chris is a lecturer in international and global history at King's College London. Their research examines the intersection of politics and sexuality in the 20th century United States. Chris's work has appeared in The Guardian, BBC World Histories magazine, and Notches, Remarks on the History of Sexuality. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Right, so here on the City Politics Podcast, we like to start things simple with a segment shamelessly stolen from Reddit called Explain It Like I'm Five, where we ask our guests to explain a couple of questions on today's topic. So Chris, would you like to go first? I'd be happy to. Great. It's Pride Month. Rainbow flags are everywhere. But perhaps our listeners don't really know that much about the history of Pride Month. So could you tell us what is the political history and significance of Pride Month? Well, at its core, Pride Month is a commemoration and a celebration of one of the most important moments in recent LGBT history. Uh, That's the Stonewall riots that took place in Greenwich Village, New York City, in uh, June and July of 1969. Uh, Those riots were a seminal moment at a watershed event for LGBT rights activism and just for LGBT culture and community. In fact, the uh, ubiquitous ubiquitous pride parades uh, that would be going on now if we weren't living in the time of COVID uh, are specific celebrations and commemorations uh, of that uh, of those series of riots, the first Pride parades were held in uh, on the one year anniversary of the riots in 1970. Uh, first ones in New York, as well as uh, paired ones in Los Angeles and Chicago, and they were deliberate efforts to uh, remember the Stonewall riots, the moments when uh, so many LGBT people fought back against the police, and it sort of became this uh, seminal moment. Uh, and to kind of provide a locus for LGBT community activism and just community life. So uh, this historical and political significance of Pride Month is deeply connected to that one event. That is really helpful. I hope that we're gonna have a chance to talk a little bit more about Stonewall, but that really explains exactly what Pride is trying to do today. Uh, That's really helpful. So Kuhn, it's your turn. When most people think about international politics, they tend to think about states and diplomacy and war, and they might not think about LGBTQI issues uh, in international politics. So why should we think about LGBTQI plus rights in international politics? Well, when we think about international politics, we often think it's just about high level issues, like you said, nationally, like a war, diplomacy, as if this doesn't have any impact on people. And it does 
immediately affect people on the ground and actually it affects marginalized people a lot more than it affects the majority. And only for that reason alone, we should consider LGBT issues as part of international politics because that group of, of people is more affected by the international politics than anybody else. If you think about war, the impact of war on LGBT people is far outweighing what it does to uh, general people. Not saying that therefore it is a kind of a victim hierarchy, but that's very much the issue, as well as a lot of international ideas are battled using LGBT rights, especially these days, as a kind of way of creating differences between states and groups of states and kind of try to decide who is better than the other, which again has a massive impact on LGBT people. And that's why I think at the core, we cannot think about states or diplomacy without thinking about how that is actually made and possible by LGBT issues. That is really well taken. I think one of the things that I would encourage our listeners to think about is the units of analysis we use to look at international politics. And when we stick to, I don't know, what might be the conventional units of analysis, like states, things get missed. And the things that get missed aren't trivial things. They're human beings and the lives of human beings. So the expansion of what we consider international politics seems to be a really valuable contribution. But let's put a pin in that because it's time for Constantine to do his thing and bring out the crystal ball and subject you to the questions. And as always, we're inflicting uh, huge amounts of pain on our guests because we force them to say yes and no when they really have minutes and hours of talk lined up. But I promise you, you know, say yes or no, and then we'll talk about all of this later on. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with Kuhn for now for the first five questions, and then we're going to switch the order around and Chris is going to give us the first and uh, Kuhn the second one. Um, so it's 10 questions, 10 yes or no answers from each of you. Question number one, once we have a definitive history of the LGBTQI movement, will the book conclude that the Stonewall riots were the most significant moment for LGBTQI rights? Kuhn, yes no. or no? No. Chris, yes or no? No. Number two, if we looked more into the role of sexuality as an explanatory variable, would we be able to better understand the international system and its history? Kuhn. Yes. Chris. Yes. Number three, will future historians look at the past few years and conclude, yes, this was about the time when the LGB part of LGBTQI split off to become its own thing again? Kuhn, yes or no? No. Chris? No. Number four, 50 years from now, will questions of sexual identity still be a political issue? Kuhn? Yes. Chris? Yes. All right, number five, in our lifetimes, will we get to a point where it truly does not matter to the vast majority of people in the world whom and how you love? Kuhn? I think no. <laughs> Chris? Nope. And now let's switch it around, uh, going with Chris first for question number six. Will academics who research LGBTQI issues necessarily be activists? Chris, yes or no? Yes. Kuhn? I'm going to say no. I can explain why, but I'll say no for now. Yes, and this is the first disagreement. So we'll, that's going to be the first thing that we're going to ask afterwards. Uh, I'll, I, I think David will make sure of that. Question number seven. Ten years from now, will there be a strong voice for intersectional working class and LGBTQI politics, Chris? Yes. Kuhn? Yeah. Question number eight. Uh, five years from now, will the focus on rights still be the central rallying point of LGBTQI politics, Chris? Yes. All right, Kuhn, what do you say? I'm saying sadly, yes. <laughs> All right, thank you. Question number nine. Will corporate engagement with LGBTQI always be pinkwashing? That is the adoption of pro-LGBTQI symbols for profit, Chris? Yes. Kuhn? I'll say no for the sake of having a debate about it. <laughs> You've looked through us. You know what to do to get us to discuss something. All right, uh, we've, been, uh, we've been revealed. All right, number 10. Will we see a successful LGBTQI political party emerge somewhere in the world during the next 10 years? Chris? No. Kuhn? No. 10 questions, 10 yes or no answers. Thank you so much, you two. Thanks so much for the answers. It's, 
I know that we've had a lot of agreement here, but sometimes it's the reasons for agreement that actually produces a really good conversation. So uh, we have yet to have a complete agreement uh, through our list. We've gotten close. This is one of the closer ones. So I think we'll start off with the first point of disagreement. So you both were asked whether academics who research LGBTQI issues uh, must necessarily be activists. And there was a division there. So Chris, would you like to explain why you think activism and academia go hand in hand? I'm not sure that act activism and academia do go hand in hand, but I think when it comes to sexuality, on an epistemological level, the choice to examine sexuality from an academic perspective, the way that modern academics do, is to uh, step on or you know, to, to build on the shoulders of and to invoke work that's been done by, you know, rather revolutionary work that's been done by people before you. To even ask the question that, you know, does a person's sexuality have a bearing upon, you know, their outlook on international politics or their place within society? That is, I think, from its tap root, a radical proposition. And you can't really meaningfully engage with the scholarship about it and investigations of LGBT people today or in the past or you know, what, any branch of uh, academia you're looking at without honestly engaging with the radical element of it. So that's why I said, I think it's, you, know, you have to be an, ac an activist if you're gonna be an academic about this. So Kuhn, you were more hesitant on making this link. Uh, perhaps you'd like to explain why. So the funny thing is I actually don't disagree with Chris at all. Like I actually really agree. It's just, I took the question as in, you have to identify as an activist. I think there's a difference between doing activism and being identified as an activist. Um, and I think it's that latter part I said no to. I don't think you have to be an activist as standing on the on the streets, on the barricades to claim and, and work for these things actively. Um, and that's why I said no. But I do think, as Chris said, like doing this kind of research in a very heteronormative academia and ac academy that is very much still working to exclude any of these voices, that that is in itself a radical act of doing an activism act within the academy as well as then translate outside. Um, and then, of course, there's a question of what does this activism mean? Because Chris, you were talking about the radicalness of it, but we also have then a lot of differences between radical research and then more like mainstream LGBT topics that don't challenge that much of the existing systems. So there's a lot of gray area there. And I, I, that's why I went for no, because I think it's it, the yes was just a bit too black and white for me. <laughs> Those are both two really interesting and nuanced answers. And I think it says a lot about the current atmosphere in academia, where we often have people, usually from outside of universities, telling us not to bring politics into teaching and into research, which seems a very difficult challenge when you work in a politics department or in a history department that specializes in politics. But Chris, I think you bring up a really great point when you talk about the epistemology of looking at something being in itself an act of activism or an act of challenging structures. It seems that there are people who think that somehow you can produce knowledge without replicating power structures or engaging in sort of political epistemological struggles. And that, at least to me, seems wildly implausible. Uh, or if it is plausible, it would constrain our discipline to being so small as to be irrelevant to the lives of many millions of people, and perhaps that's just academia, but it doesn't seem very satisfying to me. Yeah, I mean, there's there's implications well beyond this specific subject, but certainly within this subject, I mean, there's a reason why the act of coming out, the act of being recognized and identified and present within uh, a, a community is so important to LGBT people and to LGBT politics, uh, to not be hidden to actually voice uh, your perspective, to speak about the discrimination and the oppression that you've endured and the generations past have endured. I mean, I'm speaking as an historian now, uh, that were often silenced, that people were too ashamed or humiliated or just outright silenced to, to even have the chance to say. That's the essence of doing LGBT history and to speak about LGBT politics. 
uh, to come out and say about it. So yeah, I, I don't see how you can entertain the idea of merely keeping the status quo as it is in terms of the dialogue that people have and the conventional wisdom that people have about gender, sexuality, the roles therein, the identities that are considered uh, you know, acceptable or unacceptable. You, you, you can't have that, you can't teach that without uh, needing to acknowledge the need to, to sort of push boundaries. One of the things that if you think about who does this kind of research, most of the time, like 95% or maybe 99% of the people who do, do LGBT related research are from the community. And I, I do think there is something to be said about the cost that comes with doing this kind of research. Like you said, like Chris, you, you have to come out, you basically are by the nature of what you're doing coming out in a way. And that then leads to a certain kind of discrimination, discriminatory practices that you still face by doing this research I think David, you said it earlier, like, oh, people don't think this is a worthy subject of study within international politics or so forth. So you're continuously marginalized, not just for the content of your research, but also in part for who you are. And I think that's one of the reasons why so few uh, cis straight men are doing this kind of research. Because if they do, and there are some who do, they immediately brand it as being uh, gay or, or any kind of um, other identity that kind of fits within how they would be read. Um, and, and that then again leads with a lot of kind of um, discriminative practices that they have to win battle. So they suddenly also then having to do with this homophobia despite not being um, gay. And I think that that shouldn't be left unnoticed either as a kind of extraordinary practice that is so embedded in everything we do. And only for that reason itself, I think, politics cannot go away because they're just there. Would you imagine that also be a pushback from the LGBTQI community against uh, a non-LGBTQI people doing this kind of research? Much in the same way in which there might be a pushback against men, you know, taking um, uh, positions of, uh, you know, uh, theories of feminism in uh, social science departments? Or would you think that, uh, that, that that should be less of a problem? I think it all depends on how the research is done. Um, you have always extractivist research that is um, there to make, like I, I've read work by straight people who've done LGBT research that didn't engage with the work from the people before, that didn't engage with the people that don't, that, that try to just use the issue to make a name because it's a sexy topic. That receives a lot of pushback. But there are also a lot of people who actually go in and try to use their privilege to amplify other voices rather than their own. And I think that is a lot more respect. Those are rare and far in between the latter part. So it's, it's not, it depends a bit on how you engage, who do you, how, what voices are you amplifying? How do you do the research? Do we engage with the past? Um, and I think lately, because it's become such a sexy topic that we see this kind of shift of now more people stepping in without respecting the history of the research and not reading uh, as Chris was saying, all the, the work that has done by people who put their careers at risk uh, for doing that kind of work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. It's the quality of the research that ultimately counts rather than the researcher who's doing it. I, I mean, I think about my own students too, uh, when teaching them about some aspect of LGBT history, you know, yes, you will find that if they're you know, saying so, that if they're LGBT students, they are particularly interested. But the vast majority of the students that I teach are not LGBT identifying, and they're engaging with this literature in all sorts of different ways. And some of them are writing some really impressive things, and some of them aren't. I mean, that's just the nature of students and teaching and generally. And I, I like, my, my personal approach is perhaps some, you know, somewhat greedily, we, we can use all the help we can get. So we shouldn't be too choosy about who actually really wants to contribute to this uh, to this fascinating topic. When I was thinking about this topic prior to recording, one of the things that I was struck by was the fact that I teach queer theory in my international relations theory modules, which is something that did not happen when I was a student. And now I was a student a little bit ago, more than a little bit ago, but it does show that there, there is a change in trajectory in the discipline where these issues are now being taught, they're being taught, one, I think that's significant, but they're not being taught in specialized modules. They're being taught in big, general introductory modules. And I think that is a good sign. You know, I think if we're looking for reasons to be cheerful, 
Uh, this, I think, is a pretty big step forward because it was not my experience as an undergraduate student that these things got talked about either in first year courses or third year courses, to be honest. But whether, you know, but then it's like, ah, but on the other hand, David, you do not spend a whole lecture on it, you know? So is this just tokenism, right? That is something that, you know, preys on the back of my mind. You know, do we just treat this issue as something that we need to gesture to, but not substantially engage with? And that I think is a question that probably a lot of people who are not in the LGBTQI plus community and who are academics should probably seriously consider, are you doing the job properly? And sometimes I question my own practice on that. Follow up question on this or building on this um, is something else that I had in mind about the relation between sort of the, um, the field, whether it's political science or social sciences, more generally speaking. And then there's Chris who does um, the history. Well, I just put that into the social science bag for now, Chris. Uh, forgive me if you disagree with that. But let's say here we have the social sciences. And then you guys emphasize that uh, one contribution uh, of um, you know of research on these LGBTQI topics uh, is that sort of uh, just by doing this research, as Chris said, it highlighted certain topics that previously were not really on, on people's radar. Uh, I want to you know ask you uh, a little bit uh, uh, sort of building on that, um, and, and what the, the question is motivated by me going back to my intro to IR class in grad school, also just a few years ago, right, David? Uh, and I remember at that time there was no part of it that dealt with um, with even feminist theory and its role for international relations. And that was a very new thing. Um, and I remember this discussion about what has feminist theory really done for AR, IR, not just by saying it has sort of highlighted an issue that is new at the time uh, for IR, but what has it done for the field as a whole? Um, and this uh, is a question that I would like to ask you. What, what is it that uh, uh, the study of LGBTQI has done for the, the social sciences as a whole, what new perspectives enrich social sciences that way, in addition to saying, oh, well, this is an important issue, we need to study it. I think there are two questions. Like, yes, I agree with you, David, like it's really important that we teach it, but it is taught in a tokenist way. And I think that is just the way these introduction courses are set up, because I think the way we teach IR is a very classical way of teaching IR, which starts from the white men and then kind of take these theories and then some of it are like, oh, these are some of the critiques that are happening. Um, and without actually having to engage with it. And that I think is one problem. And then when you come to, so when your students come to, you know, your first student come to my third year module, which is specialized module on gender sexuality, I have to start from scratch and teach them everything about gender sexuality because they know nothing. They've never actually read it. They've never actually engaged with it. They don't understand gender as a power structure. They see it still in a very binary way which makes sense because we never talk about it, right? So it's not a critique of anybody's teaching, it's just the way in which we operate. But then I think what is happening um, is that, you know, and this comes a bit to Constantine's question about, okay, what has these fields done for the general field? What have this kind of research done for the general field? Well, actually the question is, I'm not sure whether that's a valid question to ask, because that's putting a lot of weight on particular research to change the field rather than the field having to change to fit other kind of uh, research. Because there's this newfound kind of, um, within IR, within international politics, this newfound attention for uh, the local, for the people. That's the kind of newest trend within IR. And people doing that kind of research are claiming, oh, we're the first to do this kind of research. And the feminist and queer scholars would say like, hey, we've been doing this for, for decades. Why are you not engaging in our work? And a lot of this kind of stuff happens that, that mainstream IR would say, this is brand new. And that feminist in the room or queer scholar in the room would say like, well, we've been doing this for 20 years. Why have you not read our work? Because this kind of research is still still seen as being on the margins of, and it's not relevant because it's an interest group research. Whilst I think really what we're doing is showing the underpinnings, the sub layers that structure IR. We're unpacking those and these subtle power dynamics that are within the state, that are within diplomacy, within war, uh, that govern all of these processes. We're unpacking them 
but yet nobody's interested because that would make it too complicated and too fluffy to then actually deal with for a lot of IR people. Yeah, this obsession with novelty, I think, is, I, I don't know how to put it, it's, it's sort of like it's begging the question or, or it's ignoring what's staring us right in the face. You know, what has queer history, queer theory, LGBT uh, topics brought to the table that's new? Well, it has drawn attention to a manner in which social uh, practice is ordered that had been almost completely ignored up to that point. The example I'd like to throw at is that no serious scholar could support the argument that a person's religious point of view was irrelevant to understanding their politics or the politics of that person's community and you know, much else besides. So why would you assume the same thing wouldn't be true for sexuality? Obviously sexuality and religion are very different sorts of social practice, but to analyze them as ways that power is created and replicated and understood and practiced, I mean, they, they can be looked at in just the same way. So I, I must admit, I do lose patience with the people who say, well, what have you brought to the table, queer theorists or queer historians? I say, we have brought the queerness and you need to care about that because that's important. It's as intrinsic a part of the human condition as you know, religion or race or gender or anything else. And one point I want to, to say too about Dave, uh, that, that David was commenting on, you know, this um, effort to mainstream discussions of LGBT people and queer theory and all that, to integrate it rather than to segregate it and make it a sort of a tokenistic thing. I mean, that is, the same sort of issue that scholars of race and gender and of non-European subjects uh, have had to contend with or are contending with right now. I mean, that whole effort of decolonizing curriculum is basically coming from the same uh, point of view and is trying to achieve the same pedagogic goals uh, to decenter a point of view that has been given fairly unquestioned primacy and to encourage students, and not just for its own sake, but like to uh, teach students early on to question where things are being centered, where things have been chosen to be centered by others, and how legitimate a, a perspective that is, or how, how far the, that legitimacy can take you when you're trying to understand a very complex and multifarious world. I think those are two really excellent answers. And I really appreciate that they push back at this notion that academia is here to reinforce socially accepted stories we tell ourselves about society. And this seems to be a large part of people's critiques of the university right now, is that it is somehow undermining stories about national heroes or stories about the history of states. And that's not our job as academics, right? Our job is not to replicate comforting stories that we tell ourselves tell ourselves, it's to challenge those stories. I think that that is integral to our enterprise in a lot of ways. And uh, this, I think, is definitely an extraordinary contribution that people who work in queer history or queer theory and LGBTQI issues bring to the table, right? Uh, this challenging of norms is so central to learning, to growing as a society, that it boggles my mind that there are people out there who want people who work in these areas to stop, you know, like American states banning the teaching of critical race theory, for example. Uh, that is outrageous to me. These are things that are key to the academic enterprise. Uh, but we have been spending a lot of time talking about the academic enterprise, uh, which might be a bit of a distraction from the other sort of things we want to talk about today, because we want to talk about uh, the history of the LGBTQI community, and we want to talk about the politics. Uh, so perhaps we'll do a little bit of a pivot uh, and back to the first question that came up in the crystal ball where we talked about Stonewall. Now we heard about Stonewall when we were talking about uh, the significance of Pride Month earlier in the episode. Uh, and it seems to be a very seminal moment in the history of, uh, of LGBTQI people. Uh, but both of you said it wasn't the most significant moment. Uh, so I guess the question that begs is if not Stonewall, then what? God, this is a bit tricky one because I feel a bit like I'm not a historian, so this is a bit of a tricky question as a non-historian to answer. But I think, first of all, I kind of struggle anyway when we have to pinpoint this one specific point that is significant and change the world. I think this is not how change happens in the world anyway. So kind of an epistemological point of view, it already kind of sits really uncomfortable with me. 
But also, I think one of the reasons why I'm quite hesitant of claiming Stonewall as a as the moment, like because often talked about as the birth of the modern LGBT movement, which is kind of true, but also mostly not, because by making that statement, you're dismissing everything that came before, and a lot of um, what was like a lot of what happened at Stonewall that night and then the ensuing years builds directly on. Um, work that has been done previously. Um, so there has been a lot of like the homophile movement, which was prior to um, the gay liberation movement, which was uh, very much more on this kind of, we are the same, um, so respectable, respectability politics. And, and so that movement already existed. They were already trying to make change. They had an annual reminder every year, uh, also in June, if I'm not mistaken, or in beginning of July, where they would go in front of the Capitol protesting um, and it's that protest that actually sparked the idea of having um, a, a kind of a, or a, the idea of having this annual reminder of the riots and having this pride parade or, or the, the kind of protest and the gay holiday as they called it back then, builds upon this idea of having these annual reminders but then just doing it differently. And that for me is uh, one of the reasons why I'm quite hesitant of making it the key moment because that would separate out the history and the kind of the, what came before as well as I think we need to remember that like because often we talk about Stonewall then as the first time people fought back to police brutality which was also not the case but what we see here is as it was happening um, activists realized the significance of this moment the potential of it moment and capitalized on it to make it political as it was happening and that then made it into a mythification. And I'm, I'm not very fond of myths, so that's why I'm kind of debunking it here. Uh, but this is a very important moment, but I think we need to contextualize it. And then it becomes a lot more blurry in a time span of, of probably decades rather than one pinpointed moment. At the risk of being pedantic, the way that that first question had been asked was so kind of expansive and grandiose. Uh, it made it seem like, you know, if, if when all of human history has been written, will Stonewall will be the inflection point? And so I, I latched onto that and said, no, obviously not. Um, but even if we're, we're being a little, well, less cheeky on my part, let's be honest, you know, just like Kuhn said, Stonewall was important. No one is ever going to deny that. But what it, it was important for had a history and had many subsequent twists and turns that are arguably or that are just so inextricable to what LGBT politics uh, has become and how the history of LGBT politics uh, must be told, you know, just to do, uh, um, to do honestly by it. That, you know, you can't really place Stonewall head and shoulders above everything else, even though it was very important. Um, I mean, I guess I'll play devil's advocate here and argue against myself. Stonewall was important because it changed the tempo and the tenor of LGBT rights activism. Uh, it expanded its scope um, and its reach. It arguably uh, inaugurated its international dimensions, or it certainly, again, created a scale of international connection uh, and gave maybe a language, mo most importantly. It, it gave a sort of vocabulary for non-American LGBT rights people to start rallying around and start to, to, um, to sort of improvise around for their own purposes or in their own contexts. But, you know, a lot of Stonewall is about the myth. I, I, I share Kuhn's sort of skepticism about myth, but they're also, you know, they're there and they're important. So a, a, a nice little sort of vignette I like to, to re remind people of is that Stonewall, the Stonewall riots were not the first police raid on an LGBT establishment in the United States in the 1960s. It was not the first case where there was violence involved and a fight back involved. It wasn't even the first raid on the Stonewall bar that year. The police raided Stonewall earlier on in 1969. That was part of a, a sort of political campaign that was going on in New York at the time. Why the events of late June, early July 1969 ended up becoming this flashpoint are, you know, much more than just it being that place and it being that time. There's a whole bunch of contextual factors, long-term structural factors, and also just pure contingency 
that happened to strike the match that uh, that day. Because I want to say something about why I'm so nervous about the mitification to kind of de-Americanize the conversation, right? And um, because we're very focused on the American context, which I think um, I don't want to be too much doing so. But one of the reasons why I'm so reluctant on making Stonewall as this moment is because there is also, with this mitification, there is this idea that LGBT rights movements in other places will follow the same trajectory as we have seen in the US or in the UK or in Western Europe, where there's this idea if we recreate that Stonewall moment, then we can cascade and follow the same kind of history, which leads to a transnationalization of pride parades. And I'm not saying that therefore prides elsewhere are bad per se, but I question sometimes whether it's always useful because um, we're seeing that sometimes when the first part happens, a lot of violence happens, but that doesn't lead to then the kind of changes that happen in the US context and the kind of catalyzation flashpoint as Chris really beautiful calls it within the US, but rather actually becomes a vicious cycle of more violence and more repression. And it kind of actually has negative consequences, which to me comes directly from the mythification of Stonewall as that kind of birthplace of and the potential like everybody needs the pride to be a good movement. And that to me is a bit of a danger and, and I'm really skeptical of. And, and that's why I think it's important that we debunk that myth in a part to kind of highlight that there's not just one way of gaining recognition or gaining um, social justice. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. That kind of one size fits all model for gay rights that Stonewall uh, you know, theoretical or, or putatively gives the example of. Of course it doesn't apply, although there is something uniquely American about that. The idea that you can take a moment and mass produce it and export it to the world. Yeah, just to jump in, it reminded me a few years ago, I was in Bucharest, uh, coincidentally, during Pride Month, and I was walking sort of down one of the avenues, and there were a bunch of very angry people around and they were people who were counter-protesters to the Pride Parade. And it really struck me, you know, growing up in Toronto, for example, where there is a very large Pride Parade, it's very inclusive, it's very welcoming. you know, Justin Trudeau marches in it. Uh, it's all very sort of a big, warm, fuzzy feeling. It really brought home that there is a big struggle across the world for people who identify with the LGBTQ community. And you can't sort of take the standards that we develop in places like Canada or the United States or Britain as being the standard experience of people over the world. You know, it is uh, this sort of, as Chris said brilliantly, you know, this consumerist reproduction of the American product can have, can have some danger. I think Kuhn's right is on that as well. Uh, and I will admit, I never thought of it that way. Well, it is kind of my research. <laughs> Well, and, and both of you said um, 50 years from now, questions of sexual identity will still be a political issue, which implies that, well, we, we won't be able to resolve all of the uh, lack of rights and, and all of the extent of repression um, that we're facing today that we've faced in the past 50 years and before within the next 50 years. So in a sense, you know, go back to Stonewall about 50 years here we are, we're still facing all of these issues. And then 50 years from now, we still haven't resolved these issues. Why do you think that is, Kuhn? Um, and then Chris, um, or any in any order in which you like, but both of you said, yes, um, um, this will still be an issue 50 years from now. And you also said, no, in our lifetimes, we will not get to a point where this just doesn't matter you know, for uh, people's lives. Uh, so why is that? I think we need to make a distinction between rights and sexuality being a political issue. I think for me, these are two separate things. Um, like rights are important, um, but they're not the solution. I think uh, if anything, if you have, like, you need to, like rights are a privileged thing. You need to have resources to be able to invoke your rights. Rights are not given to you, you have to claim them. Therefore, that already is, uh, that's a whole different, uh, I'll leave that to David because that's more your kind of area of expertise. But so that's already one thing I think struggle with the idea of rights, but as a kind of a solution, I mean, they will probably have a lot of laws that will kind of protect us. But if anything is shown from the last couple of years is these laws don't always work. And actually like sexuality is such a, it's, it's so deeply ingrained in how we society operates that it will always be political. It might not be the way we imagine it now, 
I think um, the identities that we're having now and the kind of labels we're using these days might not be present 50 years from now. I don't think it will be the same for the next 50 years, but I do think it will be a different kind of expression, different kind of ways in which we're talking about sexuality, in which we're talking about gender, but it will still be there. Different labels, different names, but we will still be talking about the structuring of society because everything in society is built on it. The state is built on it. The state has an inherent interest in sexuality and gender because its whole foundation is built upon the heteronormative nuclear family. And as long as that is still the foundation of our social structure, we will always be talking about gender and sexuality and anything that goes outside that little box. I mean, I can't improve on that. Gender and sexuality is so intrinsic to human experience that it will always be contested. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, that's not really something to celebrate exactly, but it's, it, I don't think it's, it's um, avoidable. Um, and I agree with the point too, that the, the vocabulary around it will certainly change. That's been the case, you know, over the last hundred years, you know, 50 years ago, the term to be used really before Stonewall was homophile rather than gay rights. And homosexual was considered to be the sort of appropriate term. Now, it, I mean, at, the, at best, it sounds sort of dated and fussy. Uh, now, or you know, at worst, it sounds a little bit derogatory. But then 50 years before Stonewall, I mean, the terminology was more like inverts and Uranians and third sex. Um, so our as our understanding of sexuality as a biological, sociological, psychological concept evolves, so too will the political discourse around those, uh, you know, th those roles, identities, typologies, whatever you want to call it. At, at the risk of being too much of a pessimist, yeah, you know, it's not just that these rights can sometimes not work, it's that they can be undone, they can regress. Um, and perhaps one of the worst, uh, or, or one of the, the, the greatest problems of the success of the advance of LGBT rights in places like the UK and US and Canada and Australia over the last 50 years has been a, a, a sense of kind of obliviousness um, and overconfidence uh, that you know, all is well and that things will just keep getting better and better and that there won't be anything like a very serious backlash. I mean, that come to think of it, I mean, that's it, it is so ignorant because even within living memory, like since Stonewall, we had a huge backlash, especially towards gay and bisexual men with the onset of the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic. Uh, the idea that something else may come along at some point that would turn, you know, so-called respectable people uh, against L uh, sexual and gender minorities again. I mean, that's that's uh, fanciful and and yeah. There's, there's a lot to unpack in both of those statements. My political philosophy background always makes me a little skeptical about rights for two reasons, I think. The first is that rights are pretty minimal, right? In, sort of, in terms of our entire social and political lives, rights tend to reflect you know, the bare minimum of what someone's owed in society. So I'm not sure whether they're exactly, we might be aiming too low by leaving our talk around rights uh, rather than talking about things like acceptance celebration. Uh, you know, these things are different political categories. The other troubling thing about rights is exactly what Kuhn was saying, uh, which is a long-standing critique of rights, that rights that aren't actionable aren't really rights at all. They're just words on paper uh, that probably fulfill some sort of ideological function. You know, if you read the Constitution of the Soviet Union, for example, it's great. Uh, but <laughs> no one was exercising freedom of speech in Stalin's Soviet Union. It just is a meaningless sort of line on a piece of paper. Uh, so being people actually being able to act on their rights is extremely important. And oftentimes people can't do that without that broader social uh, support, which I was talking about earlier. The other thing that I find difficult about rights is that rights are only one way of talking about politics and they might not be a particularly good way of talking about politics. Uh, there's been a longstanding critique from uh, Marxists and feminists that rights are confrontational, right? Rights are what you do against someone. They are very individualized. And, you know, the Marxist argument is that they play into the capitalist system uh, by enforcing things like property rights, forcing the uh, competition between 
proletarians for labor. Uh, the same thing has been said by some feminists about the use of rights in by first generation feminists. And I think there might be something to that, right? Uh, rights tend to divide as often as they bring together. I was going to say something about this because I think it's an interesting point to be made about how we speak about progress as well, because we always often talk about inclusion. It's a very more inclusive, we're more better. But to me, my question is always, okay, who is actually included and on the back of whom? Because when we're talking, and I think Chris, you really actually said it, um, it just really came to mind is when we're thinking about, okay, what, what is this progress and for whom have we won, right? Because that kind of idea, like, oh, it's all done now. It's only done for those who actually fit within what is considered to be acceptable, who fit within these heteronormative ideas around, you need to couple up and get like, a, maybe not a child, but get a dog and then get a house and get this and this and this. And so this kind of how you can be gay, but uh, lesbian, bisexual, that kind of needs to fit within a certain exit model. The same, I think, goes for trans as well. Like you need to fit within that kind of very binary. You need to adhere back again to the binary. Anything that transgresses is still beaten down and needs to be hidden and needs to be that. So what we're seeing is like all of that kind of progress is made is only for a select few. And there I say the white cis gay men have benefited a lot. And on the back of trans, um, people of color, queer people of color, and so forth, and, I th and anything that doesn't fit the binary. And that I think we need to recognize. And, and as long as we don't do that, we're just keeping this false idea of progress happening, which to me is embedded in language of inclusion and rights and all that kind of language. Um, and, and that's where also I think we're constantly we're saying like in 50 years from now, it won't be done because the way we're doing the progress is always on the back of other people. Um, and that, that to me is very important to acknowledge. I, I like your, uh, I mean, intellectually, I like the, uh, the notion of uh, uh, progress and, and sort of reversals and uh, that, that notion of complacency. And I think that's a very, very important issue. And one thing that came to mind in that context is some really sort of old school concern of comparative politics and that's institutional differences. Um, uh, I think um, that the issue of, you know, what kinds of institutions countries have, are they more majoritarian in nature, such as the UK, where progress can be, or, you know, Australia as well and New Zealand, and those are examples you mentioned, where progress can be sort of done away by a measure of parliament. You know, you have an, you have an anti-LGBTQI majority in parliament that can politically gain from reversing progress in the way in which you described it. And then, you know, that can do a lot of harm. Whereas in other countries that are less majoritarian that are more consensual in nature where there's more veto points, it is more difficult to reverse progress. You know, I think Switzerland or the Netherlands, uh, which have institutions that prevent that kind of sort of radical reversal of policy. So I think that is something uh, to be kept in mind when we talk about sort of political strategy and, and, and how to make sure that this kind of reversal is not uh, is not uh, taking place. It has this 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 wide institutional implication as well, um, and it also made me think of um, in context in the context of what you said before about sort of the the, the American focus, and and, and 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 I think that's a very good point. I think Chris made that point, but also Cohen spoke to that too. This idea that it's this powerful moment at the Stonewall Inn that had these repercussions and that could be used productively all around the world. It created this symbolism, this repertoire of contention, if you will, from a, a social movement perspective. But at the same time, uh, it also created its own problems because in some cases, this repertoire of contention just wouldn't work in some uh, countries and uh, in some parts of the world. Um, and that's some uh, point that Kohn made. So I think these are all really, really important issues when it comes to thinking about uh, about the, the the topics that we've talked about in, in a in a sort of in a strategic political context and after I've said all of that I'm going to actually ask you a question eventually uh, and that question is uh, sort of building on what we've said before so we talked about the past we talked about sort of the future and we said that it, yeah this will always be an issue and part of it is because exactly because there might be reversals and as I tried to sort of my point was they are more likely in some countries than in others um, um, but what kind of, and I realize this is a very broad question, especially since I've now just sort of come to talk about national differences, 
But what kinds of strategies do you think political strategies are best suited? And maybe in different countries, give me a case study or sort of make a general point uh, about making sure that um, not that these issues stay on the agenda, that they are properly addressed um, and that they are addressed in a sort of in a productive way. Um, and uh, this is based on sort of in a sense on that uh, question number 10 in the crystal ball where I asked you, well, is there going to be a political party? Is there going to be an LGBTQI political party? Um, and you both said, I think without much hesitation, you said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, so why is that? And what other strategies are there you know, to, to actually accomplish something in the next 50 years? Well, I mean, let me just start with the easy part. Yeah, the idea of an LGBT political party just seems laughable to me for so many reasons. I don't think that as like from a theoretical point of view, it's the right, the right sort of vehicle, the right sort of institution. I think that the you know, LGBT rights uh, or LGBT activism has shown itself to be very successful without it. So I don't really know what it would add. And to be a bit glib, I've, you know, having seen the way that LGBT uh, activist organizations work from the inside, the idea of them being becoming a political party is nearly a nightmare. I don't know whatever they would be able to agree on, never mind get done. That And that kind of goes to the to the nature of LGBT activism generally. We, we've turned it into a convenient, if somewhat cumbersome acronym, and we speak about it rightly in a kind of holistic sense. But LGBT people, rights, communities are extraordinarily diverse. They have, they encompass pretty much every kind of other diversity that society has to offer. And then within it, there are these kind of overlapping layers of complexity of uh, dealing with identity and with, uh, you know, the prioritization of certain rights or, or certain sort of, uh, well, certain kinds of oppressions that different communities face. As far as tactics that would work, I think we've got a good one. And it's the thing that has brought us here together today, pride. Uh, pride parades, pride as an institution unto itself that puts on parades and that creates events over the course of a month and that creates institutions that plan them and that also kind of, uh, you know, spread out into other uh, dimensions of uh, the community and, and civil society more broadly. We have a very adaptable and uh, successful and potent vehicle in the form of pride. So I don't really know what uh, a, yeah, a political party wouldn't be necessary. And what we have right now is really quite remarkable. I mean, there's, there's really nothing quite like pride and specifically pride parades for just how many things it can be to how many different people. And you know, how fitting is that? Or is the, and that is sort of the only way that it could work for a community as diverse as LGBTQI+. It's a tricky question, I think. Um, I, I, I agree with everything Chris said about the party. I don't think it will work. Like also just if you think about it from an electoral, electoral um, potential of such a party is so small, like it would be a niche uh, topic party that wouldn't even reach enough people to be interested. Plus not every, like there is this often assumption that LGBT people in the community is inherently progressive and it all thinks the same way, which is definitely not the case. We've seen, uh, I mean, you've seen the Trumps for, uh, the gays for Trumps, the, 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 the gays for Brexit and, and, and God knows what else. I mean, I'm, I'm using gays here a bit like a, not the right way, but let's, let, let me just leave it there. Uh, <laughs> acknowledge it and leave it there. Um, but I think, so that, that would be one problem with the party idea that it, it, there is, like it wouldn't fit within the political spectrum and it would never have the appeal to even be electable. But also, I think when it comes to the tactics, I think, you know, it, it really depends on the context. I, I don't think, like as someone who studies sexuality in Serbia and the Balkans in, in, and, and kind of in the non-Western places, context really matters. And I think we can't say there is one tactic that will work. Sometimes being invisible is the best tactic you can have because being visible is actually more harmful than being invisible. So I, I, we need to, like, this visibility has been proven really successful as Chris said, it's been one of the most potent ways of doing activism in our contexts, but that doesn't translate and sometimes it creates more harm. But what I do want to say is also like pride, as, as, so if we take our current context of the UK or the US or any kind of uh, Western uh, environment, 
I think, yes, I agree with Chris, Pride is really important, it really works, but the question we also need to ask is for what goal, right? If you want a systemic critique or a system critique, I don't think, like, it, you probably used to be that, it used to be extremely, like if you go back to the Gay Liberation Front manifestos and, and all their kind of work was super critical, it was super intersectional, super uh, challenging the entire system, we're no longer there. Right now operates within very capitalist neoliberal function and it's very hard to kind of, there's a lot of pushback to try and reclaim it, but it's very difficult tension. And I'm not sure if you want to change that system, it will work. But then also the question is what kind of liberation or like do we want queer liberation or do you want LGBT equality, which I think are two opposing ideas. And the question is, what do we want? And that will determine what kind of tactics we're using for LGBT equality. Probably Pride works for queer liberation. Not sure anymore. Um, and that that is really the question uh, that we're asking. And, and, and this is the tension I think Chris was talking about. About there is such differences in what we want and how that sits within the current system. So um, talking about uh, political tactics, you both said that, you know, political party, that's a silly idea. It's not going to work, not enough potential. Um, we have better tactics. And then really what I was trying to do is sort of to tease out what those tactics were and how they can, how they can, be, uh, they can be used also in the future. Uh, and uh, I, I think you, you gave some sort of a great uh, input on that. And then one word that uh, has been used uh, frequently in that context, and maybe we should add another, explain it to me like I'm five, uh, uh, plus uh, is the word intersectionality. Um, so you both use that term uh, in, in various contexts. Uh, so maybe, you know, you can explain to me like I'm five, what is intersectionality and why is intersectionality so important for the political tactics, if it is uh, important, if not, then tell me why it is not important for the political tactics uh, of the movement. Uh, uh, and also, how, how can intersectionality, how might it look like uh, a few years uh, from now? I mean, without Kimberly Crenshaw on the call, I feel defining intersectionality is going to be very, very inadequate on our part. It's, as, as I've tried to explain it to students, I mean, intersectionality is at its core the acknowledgement that people experience multiple oppressions. People uh, experience both marginalization and privilege based off of identity uh, in overlapping and sometimes contradictory ways. If you're a woman, you may be oppressed because of your sex, but you may be empowered and privileged because uh, of your race, especially if you're you know, white or of your wealth, if you happen to be you know, very well off. If someone can come up with a better and more succinct definition of intersectionality, stop me there. Uh, what I will say about its utility is that it is absolutely indispensable to LGBT politics. You know, as, as a historian, I look just in the last 20 years at the ways that uh, trans rights have uh, become elevated and, uh, and are almost not quite still contentiously getting to sort of equality with the LGBT or the LGB side of things. Um, in the United States, certainly, I mean, that, that was built on the back of intersectional politics. That was built on the back of seeing race and class and sexuality uh, and gender as being interlocking and overlapping and interwoven experiences that, you know, to, to make a long story short, basically allowed trans people to appeal to mainstream gay and lesbian uh, politics and politicians uh, using the same rhetoric that gays and lesbians had been using to appeal to straight society a generation earlier. Um, I mean, Kuna, is, is this more your wheelhouse? I, 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 know, I know intersectionality, but I'm not, I wouldn't ever consider myself an expert on it. Well, neither do I, but... Um... But I think, I mean, you did explain it quite well. And I, I think it's really one of the core arguments, I think it's that lived experiences, like we can't homogenize groups because they are all different. And there's a lot of like, I mean, we're talking about diversity within um, the, the communities. And I think, you know, we mentioned, like I, like I referred to the white, the cis white gay men as this very peculiar kind of group within, which then again can be like um, separate out for our own class. Because I think actually, when I say that the, the group that won the most is the cis white gay middle class men. But I think so, it's really about unpacking these lived experiences and knowing that lived experiences are guided and shaped by all the oppression systems at once. Some give you privilege, some give you 
are, are giving you struggle and it's that imbrication that creates a lived experience and each imbrication of oppression structures create a different sets of challenges and structures that affect you and so we can still try and kind of group and trying to understand, okay, what's the experience of a black woman versus a white woman? So that's kind of often how it's analyzed, but that's quite reductive. Um, but it's a, it's a super interesting analytical tool and, and concept to think through and understand the diversity and kind of avoid homogenization of experiences. But in practice, I think it's quite hard to kind of use it because often it becomes an add and stir technique, which is not what it's meant to be. Well, it sounded good to me. I think I understand intersectionality a little bit better, thanks to both of you explaining it to us like we're five. There's so much more to talk about, but unfortunately, we are out of time. I'd like to thank our guests for appearing on the show. Please keep an eye out for Chris Park's forthcoming book about the life and career of former Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells, under contract with University of Chicago Press. They tweet from Park's Land. Kuhn's Loopmakers can be followed on Twitter at K. Slutmakers, and be sure to read his most recent article, Unpacking Normative Resonance, the Attitudinal Panopticon and the Implementation Gap of LGBT Rights in Serbia, available in Social Politics, International Studies in Gender, State, and Society. As always, we'd love you to follow us on Twitter at The City Politics, and drop us a line at cpp at city.ac.uk. Konstantin Vossing tweets from K underscore Vossing, and I'm still chasing that blue tick on at GD Blunt. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Thanks for listening, and happy Pride Month to all our listeners. <laughs>